0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from one of my own works called No Millennium, Really? And my answer to that is, no, that's not true. There is a millennium for sure, and I've been through the entire Old Testament now with you, and most of the New Testament, by the way, this is number 13 here on Sermon Audio, but number... Sixteen. If you were to follow it up on YouTube, it's the same content, Um, and that's at Pasturelands on YouTube. It's also a book at Amazon.com. You can download the PDF of the book freely right here at Sermon Audio if you just go to number one in the series here. Well, following the expanded description of the tribulation and a brief description of the coming kingdom, there are only two chapters left in the Bible. Will we find kingdom there? Of those two, the second one contains only five verses. That That's last chapter of the Bible. Only five verses telling of the final state of God's kingdom. We're faced with a puzzling question as we approach this state of things. Why, after a 1,000-year rule with his saints... Does God decide to destroy everything then and start over? Now the earth is perfected. Now death is defeated. Certainly now we can enjoy the planet. Why now? Well, consider our own transformation. Though we were to die in perfect health, you and I, and and perfect relationship with God, these old bodies have been tainted. They've been corrupted. They need to be renewed. Totally. And at the first resurrection, this will happen. During the millennial reign, the thousand years, as wonderful as it will be, there will still be sin and sinners. Death will be allowed until the very last battle with Satan. Disobedience and defiance will be a part of even this new world under Jesus' control. The earth is tainted. God will remove his people Give them over to the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and annihilate this planet once and for all. Some call it the uncreation. That final day of the Lord will involve the heavens passing away with a great noise. I'm in 2 Peter now. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Peter, as Jesus in his incarnation, does not see the thousand years, as does John, and seems to go directly to the final destruction from our present status. He's possibly using Psalm 102 as a reference and and adding some words that he's hearing from the Spirit at that time. It's a true revelation, but not timed as John times that same event after the thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 11. Why does John see the bride of Christ entering this new heaven and new earth? The new earth, I mean. Did they not enter a thousand years earlier? Consider this. First, the reign with Christ. Then the earth is destroyed and the people of God are taken to heaven while the new earth is recreated. Then they come back and inherit the new earth. Are there differences between the millennial period and the post-millennial period after the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, there are some, and I think they're significant. For example, In that final status, there's no more death. That was defeated during the reign. There's no more temple. Ezekiel's millennial temple, that's the same house as seen by Isaiah, will no longer be needed. The Lord is now the temple. No more sun and moon. The Lamb is the light. The gates are not shut. There's no more enemies. There's no more curse. Absolutely no reminders of that last planet's corruptions. There's no sorrow, no crying, no tears. All things are new. There's no night. A description of the bride, the new city, the nations that shall still be giving glory to God. There's the tree of life. And then the book ends. The Bible Revelation, it just suddenly ends with severe warnings and an invitation for us to come to Jesus and for Jesus to come to us. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. No more information? No more. We will have 1,000 years to find everything we need to know about that eternal state. It hasn't entered into our minds, nor can it, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Not yet. Not yet. Well, we want to move from here to something else. We've covered the entire Bible. I've shown you passage after passage that shows that there has always been in the mind of the Father a kingdom, a kingdom. But the history of millennial thought, well, it goes somewhere else after the Bible. The scriptures speak volumes about a coming kingdom, and John tells us exactly how that kingdom fits into the chronology. How could this be made clearer, I wonder? What was it that brought this teaching down to be replaced by a no kingdom or kingdom now or eternal only or spiritual kingdom only doctrine? Did everyone after the apostles just abandon The literal scriptures, let's look at a little history. But to whom should we appeal when looking for foundational truths? I believe the apostles and prophets, when taken literally, can only be called pre-millennial. That is, they believed in a 1,000-year reign of Christ and his people on earth, following the return of Christ to that earth. Is there another teacher anywhere that has more authority that is more trustworthy, that speaks with one voice? No. The rest of the teaching on the millennium from first century, end of first century on down is garbled. Whether the church fathers that followed the apostles, the church father himself, Augustine, the Roman system that led into the dark ages, the reformers, or well-known teachers that have appeared since, they've all taken Well, they've all got their own take on the future kingdom. There's no one to build upon. That's not to say there were no voices at all after the apostles that sounded a lot like the prophets and apostles. Two stand out especially. Justin Martyr is among the most well-known of the early church fathers. He was born around 100 A.D., not long after the death of the last apostle, John. His life is legendary and exemplary but I quickly go to the comments he has made on the subject at hand. This is from chapter 80 of his Dialogue with Trifo. He says, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem which will then be built. Jerusalem will be built. For Isaiah spoke in that manner concerning this period Of a thousand years. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah never mentions the number 1,000, but he did mention the kingdom. And John put the thousand in there. Even at this early time, many had departed from this belief, Justin says. and And I quote, and many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Well, that was gracious of him. Irenaeus was born when Justin was about 30, and he lived into the 3rd century. He eventually became the Bishop of Lyon and was outspoken in his beliefs about the millennium. His fifth book of Against Heresies contains this millennial argument based on God's promise to Abraham. He says, The promise remains steadfast. God promised him the inheritance of the land, and yet, Abraham did not receive it during all the time of his journey there. Accordingly, it must be that Abraham, together with his seed, that is, those who fear God and believe in him, will receive it at the resurrection of the just. In another place, the reference is to Jacob. The blessing to Jacob, he says, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom when the righteous will bear rule after their rising from the dead. It is also the time when the creation will bear fruit with an abundance of all kinds of food, having been renovated and set free. And all of the animals will feed on the vegetation of the earth, and they will be in perfect submission to man. And these things are borne witness to in the fourth book of the writings of Papias, the hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp. Well, with Papias and Polycarp being added to believers in this doctrine, we've named some of the most influential of the early church leaders. They were all pre-millennialist. Now, there were others in the early days, even later, but the trend was changing. A contemporary of Justin and Irenaeus was one Marcion, This man was opposed to using the entire Old Testament. Well, there go the prophecies and most of the new also. He was devoted to the Apostle Paul, and yet he abandoned the teaching of the personal return of Christ. He did not believe in a real incarnation, so there could not be a second coming. He obviously had no use for a millennial reign. Marcion was the church's first great heretic, and yet many followed him and latched onto his system which included the amillennial position. Marcion would have been very comfortable in the Western church today and much of it. He could have started his own megachurch and many would have followed him. Look at the look at Andy Stanley, who's, who's coming against the Old Testament and our need for it today. Look at those who have amillennial views today and other things. Marcion would be not a heretic. He would be a hero. What about Origen? The real strong opposition to the premillennial kingdom rose in the third century, and among generally accepted men of the church. Origen was the first to come against the one thousand years. Origen's approach to the matter was allegorical, symbolic, and not only the millennium but the whole idea of a physical second coming was done away with in Origen. in his commentary on Matthew. He taught that Christ's return signifies his disclosure of himself and his deity to all humanity in such a way that all might partake of his glory to the degree that each individual's actions warrant. Oh my, what did you say? (laughs) This belief in a non-literal millennium, or no millennium at all, gained wider acceptance after the days of Constantine, an age that coincides with the ever-growing influence of, of Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430 A.D. Augustine's most famous work was The City of God. He is quoted in Book 20, Chapter 7, as saying this, Now the thousand years may be understood in two ways. So far as it occurs to me, either these things happen in the sixth thousand of years or sixth millennium, you know, the latter part of which is now passing. And now he says, let me intervene here. This was his original view, in keeping with many biblical literalists of his day, that there would be six thousand years of purely human history as we're living now, followed by a golden age of one thousand years. Uh, But his faith in such a future began to waver, perhaps because of the influences of others. And later he is quoted in a different vein. He says the kingdom of God was already manifest in the church. The age between Pentecost and the return of Christ was the millennium itself, marked by the ever-increasing influence of the church in overturning evil. So here's the blending of church and Israel, the present age with the Bible's future age. This formula has been tried by others, but somehow it doesn't fit in their idea and in Spurgeon and some others. The the church was just going to get better and better and better and more powerful because the gospel was going to get a hold of people's lives and change things forever. And by the time Jesus came... We would be able to offer to him a kingdom that was perfect in every way. That would be the end of the millennium. So Jesus would come after the millennium, post-millennial thought. Origen and Augustine and many of the like-mind had their way in the ever-evolving description of the kingdom. Until that description, like many other church teachings, was just buried in the vast wasteland that we call the Dark Ages. Dark because the light of God's word was hidden by priest and pope and scholar. The church was entering its serious apostasy, and the millennial question was put on hold. Most were not concerned about it anyway. Now, I'm not going to visit each of the godly men who dared to come out of, or to be put out of, the Church of Rome. We love them all. We honor them all. Names like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Huss, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, where would we be without them? But the reformers share one very difficult circumstance. That is, they all had the same mother. Mother Church was a cruel mom and a false one, and a mother whose beliefs were seemingly set in stone. The heroes of the faith came as far from her as they dared, But they didn't come far enough, in my opinion. As with the Church Fathers, you'll find a variety of competing beliefs among the Reformers. They struggled over the communion service, the form and the reason for baptism, and more. They were not in agreement with each other on a number of issues. Some practices and beliefs were simply taken from Rome as a given. And to this day, Reformed can mean any number of things. And the reformed churches will often admit that they themselves are in need of reforming. One of the teachings that came out of Rome with those leaving her was that ah millennial doctrine. There is no millennium. things are going to get better and better, or things are going to get worse and worse, but but the millennium is now It all went back to Augustine and earlier church fathers. It was not contested for some time. But eventually men arose who discovered something that hadn't been noticed before, and that is the number 1,000. Eventually, in the 1700s and 1800s, and actually before, there were uh, Puritans who who saw this also. The light of a premillennial coming of Christ, followed by the kingdom, promised by all the prophets, they saw it. It began to shine more brightly in the church again. Though there are those who want to tell us that premillennialism began in these later centuries, one guy has put it at 1830. Okay, uh, but we can prove otherwise. We can easily see now that it actually resurfaced. It didn't begin then, it, it resurfaced after having been buried with other treasures for centuries inside a Bible that was largely ignored by the masses and interpreted only by the elite of Rome. And so, in short, pre-millennial beliefs flourished in the first century, largely in the second. Their revival occurred, well, slowly but surely, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century in particular, only to be challenged more recently by a growing revival of reformed thought, The pendulum is swinging away from the literal millennium in our day as Reformed churches continue to hang on to the teaching they inherited inherited from Mama and they pressure their fellow believers in other communions to drop the argument altogether for the sake of unity. One denomination that I know of that used to be strictly premillennial, the Evangelical Free Church, has taken the very word premillennial out of its description of the coming king. We don't want to offend, they say. I know this this feeling of cooperation goes all the way back to Justin Martyr, who, as we quoted above, believed there were good people who believed in amillennialism. So let's be loving. And truly there are good people who do believe amillennialism. But is our faith in the literal scripture so weak that we must keep making accommodations for those who simply can't believe it or won't believe it. This ebb and flow of doctrinal positions is true about the events of Genesis 1-11, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the doctrines of grace, eternal judgment, probably every biblical position that there is. How far are we going to go to appease people among us won't accept the scripture as it is written. Well, maybe a look at the science of hermeneutics will help. That's what we're going to do next time. I don't know if it will help, but I want to put it out there for you anyway. As one last audio on this subject, a word about hermeneutics. Thank you so much for being with me today. Do come back. Look over the website, This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.